Welcome to the latest edition of Cantal on Effects with Sean Corrigan, and today I shall be discussing the yield curve, something hard to avoid at the moment. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you. It's impossible to open the financial pages or tune into a dedicated news channel just now without finding someone there offering their two-penneth about something they call the yield curve. For those not intimately au fait with financial market parlance, what this refers to is a plot showing the different interest rates or yields applicable to instruments of longer or shorter maturities. And the shorthand, the yield curve, tends to mean the difference between two specific points, though just which of those long and which short is often a matter for personal taste or subjective foible. Typically, but by no means universally, the default measure is the gap between the yield on two-year government bonds and their 10 or sometimes their 30-year equivalents. Though some like to start all the way up at the front end of the maturity spectrum and compare the latter pairing to three-month treasury bills instead. Here we must be aware that there are as many attempts at explaining what determines the shape of this curve as there are PhD students dancing on the head of a pin, and none of those explanations are entirely satisfactory, as may be gathered from the fact that there is such a profusion of them. But by convention, it is treated as normal for the curve to be positive, that is, for the 10-year note, say, to have a higher yield, to throw off more income per period, than, for example, the 2. Intuitively, this does make sense, if you consider that the longer you trust someone with your money, the greater the uncertainty about what adverse changes may occur between the granting of the loan and its repayment. Changes to your debtor's ability to pay, to your need for funds in the interim, and also to the general economic and legal background which will determine just what, and how much, that money will buy when you get it back, as well as, of course, how heavily taxed it might be. Thus, it would hardly be strange if you were to demand more compensation and also be less willing, in the first place, to tie your fortune up for each successively longer period you're asked. The former will raise the cost, the latter will reduce the supply, and so the yield will be higher. Be that as it may, empirical observation shows us that whenever this relationship becomes reversed, when the curve, as we say, becomes inverted, that is, sloping down to the right instead of up, the economy is usually in danger of hitting the rocks. And hence, when the curve starts to lose its upward tilt, when it flattens, a cold sweat starts to overcome both members of the speculative class and the kindly central bankers who tend so generously to backstop their activities. But it's only a short step from an empiricism which is entirely lacking in any theoretical underpinning to blind numerology and to cabalistic superstition of the kind which either implicitly believes that an inverted curve somehow causes the ensuing recession, or mutters darkly in corners that the market with a capital M is embodying some deeper esoteric foreknowledge of the crisis to come, even though nobody active in that market can quite put their finger on what it is they're supposed to be aware of. In essence, financial markets today have allowed this sort of consideration to send themselves into an orgy of tail-chasing. The logic runs as follows. The fourth quarter's sharp correction in asset markets, combined with undoubted evidence of an economic deceleration both at home and abroad, has led the Solons at the Federal Reserve to backpedal hastily from their earlier relatively gentle tightening of conditions, and so, 
by a process of extrapolation all too common in this metier, to be on the verge of performing a full about-face and actually easing again. On that account, it must be time to buy more of those longer-dated fixed-income securities, those bonds, which will most appreciate in value under the circumstances. Aggravating this shift in buyers' preferences, the so-called leveraged accounts identified by the regular futures markets reports, i.e. the guys who play the game on the thinnest of margins and who borrow by far the greater part of their table stakes, have come into this turnaround collectively carrying all-time record short exposures, and are so are having to chase the market higher as it climbs in a scramble for self-preservation. Additionally, in today's world, there are other self-reinforcing factors at work. Lowered bond yields feed through into the pricing of mortgage securities, for example, making their inbuilt option for borrowers to prepay and refinance at lower rates more likely to be exercised. That encourages the lenders to buy additional paper as an offset to maintain their desired exposures, in a phenomenon known as negative convexity, which is bond market talk for if it can go wrong, it will. A similar feature will also be at work presently thanks to the idiosyncrasies of pension fund accounting, by which the calculated value today of the scheme provider's future payouts will rise as the interest rate by which these are discounted falls. And so a further counterbalance is required, whether undertaken through derivative markets or directly by buying the bonds themselves. And finally, of course, long yields are not just subject to the influence of their homegrown central bank. With economic alarms ringing around the globe, the Fed is not the only monetary authority now rowing worriedly back from a less accommodative stance. And US yields do, after all, still offer eye-wateringly wide pickups over the competition, at least if one is prepared not to hedge the currency exposure entailed. The upshot of all this is that the appetite for longer bonds has become greatly heightened, and like some wondrous dietary aid, this is, for now, a hunger which only increases the more one eats to satiate it. More avid buying means long bond prices rise, higher bond prices means lower yields, lower long yields mean a flatter, and at present even a partially inverted, curve. But, ouch! And here, dear Fido becomes positively frantic in trying to seize his own rearmost appendage in his jaws. An inverted curve must mean a recession is nigh. The Fed must be getting nervous. Well, OK, it probably is. So the prospect of a rate cut looms all the larger in the windscreen. And therefore, you guessed it, we need to buy more bonds, invert the curve more deeply, and so fan our own fears even further. In all this cacophony of mutual self-alarm, if not outright mass hysteria, it's hard not to think, as we often do, of Fritz Machlup's humorous but telling analogy of the idiot magician, who was just as surprised as his audience when he pulled out of his hat the rabbit that he himself had only recently concealed there. OK, so perhaps we've now almost convinced you not to treat this yield curve business too mechanistically. But maybe you're still left wondering why it is that it seems to have been such a reliable weather vane so often in the past. The simple answer to that, the most simplistic even, is that the Fed, whose influence is necessarily much more strongly felt on short rather than long rates, has over-tightened. That by driving using the rear mirror, as it inevitably must if it insists on being what it calls data-dependent, 
It has simply failed to recognise that its ongoing restriction has caused more strangulation than it had imagined. Too late, something cracks somewhere in the system. Losses mount, factories are boarded up, a new financial calamity seems to threaten. This provokes a panic release of the brakes and a gear-wrenching, tyre-squealing jab on the gas pedal instead. Well, yeah, sometimes. The central bank's previous sins, whether of omission or commission, in the boom will have encouraged too much activity whose continuation is by now too firmly predicated upon such laxity continuing, if not actually intensifying. There are, after all, limits to the billions of dollars of borrowed funds one can shell out for a succession of cash-guzzling unicorn fantasies, as well as to the forbearance extended to those less faddish firms just barely scraping by as their owners' plans fall by the wayside and the market for their goods dries up. Thus, the Fed's horrified recollection that aeroplanes which begin to experience more drag than thrust are also prone to suffer a catastrophic loss of lift means it will be cutting rates, and doing so furthermore, according to its own flawed doctrines, more rapidly than it first raised them. The elusive soft landing will not be at hand. The upshot of this is that those short rates upon which we said the central bank's decision have the greatest impact will now fall away much more quickly than will the long. Therefore, having flattened or inverted up to this point, the curve now re-steepens, as all hands are set to the pumps. Now, risably, there's an entire school of one-eyed macro chart jockeys who will earnestly tell you that it is not, therefore, the inversion itself which signals the recession with a capital R, but it's the Fed's driven re-steepening which rings the toxin. You need to know here, by the way, that the recession, with a capital R, is only declared to be so in retrospect and only according to the somewhat arbitrary divinations of the oracles at the National Bureau of Economic Research, largely by tradition. So what we have here is an idea that there can be no recession unless the Fed first worries that it has caused one, and we won't know whether that judgment is right until it is much later announced by a particular body of academics in conclave somewhere in the groves of the ivory tower. And yet all this is supposed to be tradable in real time. Genius. All in all, what we're left with here is the slipstream from a milestone of market tail chasing, helping intensify an equally rapidly spinning vortex of Fed second guessing, the turbulence between them causing one to feed in and reinvigorate the second like two black holes collapsing in the depths of space. Is there nothing more to it than this? Is it really turtles all the way down? Well, in fact, way back in 1937... Now, now, settle down, Ray. This isn't about you and your widely circulated misreading of what happened in that era. Hayek addressed this very issue in a paper somewhat abstrusely called Investment That Raises the Demand for Capital. What he laid out there was the rationale that when the tide goes out, those likely to be found swimming naked will do anything they can to avoid having their shame fully exposed. In less metaphorical terms... Firms who have been misled into thinking more real capital is available to see their projects through to a profitable conclusion than actually exists will try to plug the gap in any way they can, including by undertaking short-term distress borrowing, possibly at penal rates, wherever such finance is available. 
or else by dunning their customers for prompt settlement and then hiding behind the sofa when their own suppliers come a-calling. The need to bridge the gap between income and outgo, between revenues and expenses, and to tide oneself over until one's goods resume their movement down a rickety and now frequently jammed conveyor belt and off into someone's shopping basket is therefore what pushes short rates painfully upwards. At the same time, the lack of relative appetite to engage in new long-term projects, mixed with a flight out of more risky instruments to the relative safety of the most gilt-edged fixed-income securities, tends to insulate the longer end from this same pressure, as does the faith that the current episode of stringency is only a passing phase and so need not be priced fully into the entirety of the maturity spectrum. Hence the curve flattens and even inverts, as a loose credit boom turns to a full Austrian bust. So the issue which faces us now is twofold. Has the Fed really overcooked the pudding, and or is the Hayekian squeeze underway? In either of these two cases, what we should expect to see, if we are going to corroborate the signal given off by the yield curve, are rising delinquencies and defaults, a rash of bankruptcies, greater bank provisioning for loss and lower bank profits as a consequence, we'd anticipate that there'd be tighter loan conditions in the form of more stringent covenants and wider credit spreads, as well as lower loan volumes and fewer securities issues at all. In sum, businesses should soon be complaining that those fair-weather umbrella holders, the banks, have declared rain-stopped play and that borrowing has become much more difficult in all forms. And then again, the prices of many other assets, not least the stocks of the shakiest entities being favoured in the boom, should start to tumble. Now, do we see any of this at present? Not really, with the possible exception that there has been a certain fading in the volume of new issuance. But otherwise, quite the converse, in fact. So does this mean the US economy can categorically be said not to be facing any troubles, despite the selective anxiety pervading financial markets? Well, not entirely. For us, among the more timely and least manipulated sets of useful data that we routinely consult are those that relate to turnover, to shipments, revenues, sales, call them what you will. As we have frequently pointed out before, the sound of the cash register ringing is both the most welcome sound a businessman can hear as well as the most immediate sign that his affairs are progressing as he would wish. Indeed, changes in the frequency with which that cheery ching reverberates across the shop floor are what he seems to weight most heavily in his assessment when he provides answers to one of those regular surveys of his feelings, such as provided by the American ISM or the German EFO. Moreover, there's a demonstrably solid and very long-standing coincidence between the pace of said revenue growth and changes in the Fed funds rate, with the latter tending to be hiked whenever the former accelerate much beyond a 6% per annum pace. Indeed, by those lights, and wittingly or not, and of course despite all the derision heaped upon him for his supposed lack of backbone, Fed Chairman Jay Powell was actually right to say in the early autumn that rates needed to rise further, and then as the advance in the pace of revenues began to cool, to temper that assessment a month or so later and describe things as being just below neutral. 
As that cooling deepened and intensified into something of a genuine chill by year's end, his move to call an interim height to the tightening was also, therefore, no more than past precedent might dictate. Now, let's not be misconstrued here. The Federal Reserve's conduct of policy has been increasingly abject from at least the time of Alan Greenspan. It has been far too tolerant of building financial excesses, too tardy in raising rates in the upswing, and too aggressive in cutting them in the down. In fact, one of the few positive things one can say about the institution is that it has not been as badly run as have its major peers, whether the hapless Bank of Japan, the nakedly political ECB, or the Bank of England under the direction of its narcissist-in-chief, Mark Carney. At least when Powell took over early last year, the glacial and belated pace of rate increases tentatively being undertaken by his predecessor, five baby steps spread over two years after seven whole years of near-cryogenic stasis, was smartened to the tempo of a Sousa march. And last summer, this was entirely justified. Not only were financial markets looking decidedly bubbly, but sales growth had quickened to a six-year high of around 8%. And then the rot set in. Whether through the impact of the Sino-American trade war, the knock-on from the European demonization of diesel-fueled road vehicles, China's vice-like squeeze on shadow banking, the US government furlough, the abnormally harsh winter weather, or because of less ephemeral and more deep-seated issues, well, that remains to be seen. But since the late spring, there has effectively been no further increase in the tempo of the cash-till tango whatsoever. Manufacturing, wholesale and retail trade, both residential and non-residential private construction, and of course, imports and exports, all of these were vibrant in the first half of last year, and all are now treading water in a manner not seen since the commodity collapse of 2014-15, or the GFC and the tech bubble before that. This therefore bears very close attention in the weeks and months ahead. Now to recap, bond markets spent much of the time since early 2016, and the end of what we then called the hidden recession, and more particularly the stretch after Donald Trump's inauguration, pushing ever higher in yield. By contrast, the last quarter's stock market route and the subsequent relaxation, both real and rhetorical, by the world's major central banks has forced those yields pell-mell back down into the middle of the range which has contained them for the past seven years, with fives and tens clearly leading the charge. Short-dated futures the ones which tell us where the interest rate applicable to a loan of three months' duration is being guessed to lie at some point in the times to come, have gone from pricing in at least one more hike to discounting an initial cut as soon as the autumn, with more to follow early in 2020. For that to be a bet worth taking, you have to be very sure indeed that revenues and with them profits, jobs, investment and all the other activity that they will bring in their train are not going to shake off the past few quarters torpor they're not going to recover their earlier momentum that this slowdown is not only going to persist but it's going to intensify because in that case the Fed will react those prognostications built into the futures market as extreme as they seem at the moment will eventually be validated and the brave souls who've run them through there will get their due reward 
Only in that case, therefore, will we be able to say definitively that the infamous inverted yield curve did not this time prove to be an oracle of an entirely Delphic nature.